with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thanks for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I have Dr. Timothy Baldwin, and he is the Randall L. Tobias Distinguished Chair in Leadership and Professor of Management at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. Professor Baldwin holds a PhD in Organizational Behavior from Michigan State University and an MBA from MSU as well. He is a Spartan through and through, well, and also a Hoosier, a Spartan Hoosier. He has published his research work in leading academic professional outlets and has won several national research awards, including eight Best Paper Awards from the National Academy of Management. He has twice been the recipient of the Richard A. Swanson Excellence in Research Award presented by the American Society for Training and Development. He is also the co-author of three books, Improving Transfer Systems and Organizations, Developing Management Skills, What Great Managers Know and Do, and Organizational Behavior, Real Solutions to Real Challenges. Now in his 35th year at IU, Professor Baldwin has frequently been recognized for teaching excellence, including multiple MBA and undergraduate teaching awards, the Eli Lilly Alumni Teaching Award, the Facet All University Teaching Award, and the Dow Innovation and Teaching Fellowship. His background also includes consultation with Eli Lilly, FedEx, Whirlpool, and a variety of other organizations in the public and private sector. He founded the MBA Sports and Entertainment Academy at Kelly and has designed and delivered numerous executive education seminars in the U.S. and abroad. 
Professor Baldwin was the chair of the Department of Management and Entrepreneurship at Kelly from 2014 to 2020, and he currently serves on the board of directors of Kripe Architects and Engineers, a professional services firm based in Indianapolis, and World Arts, Inc., a printing firm based in Spencer, Indiana. He has also served on the national advisory boards for organizations including Graduate Management Admissions Council and Educational Testing Services. Professor Baldwin is married with one son, one dog, one cat, and his interests include coaching youth sports, golf, gardening, and I wasn't expecting this, sir, a little amateur magic. So talk to me a little bit about magic. This is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Before we do that, all right, if you're going to give a highfalutin intro like that, two <laughs> thoughts on that. First, uh, congrats on your success in the Phronesis podcast. And it's a treat to be invited on. So I look forward to our conversation. And Thank secondly, you. whenever I get a highfalutin introduction like that, I'm reminded you mentioned my family and they're such great levelers. And so I, I have to share just a brief story. When my son was about 10 years old, he had a friend over playing. I must have left a name tag on the table or something and his little friend looked at the name tag and it said dr timothy baldwin and he said to my son i didn't know your dad was a doctor and my son said well he's a doctor but not the kind that helps people <laughs> and that always uh, strikes me as being a little more realistic in terms of all this stuff so thank you for that uh, wonderful <laughs> intro and i hope i can uh, live up to some of those uh, highfalutin credentials but uh, yeah the magic was just uh, i grew up in a little small michigan town down. Yeah. And uh, right next to uh, Abbott Magic Company in Colon, Michigan. Nice. And I developed a love and then I've, I've uh, off and on in my career used it. Some other, you know, dignitaries, Adam Grant, who's one of my, you know, kind of uh, uh, favorite uh, uh, reads now and podcasts. All right. He likes to delve into a little magic and it just creates, we're going to talk a little bit about transfer of training and some of these things. It, it creates kind of a jolt in the classroom, gives you a little something different, raises attention. You can tie it in. So yeah, I'd like to play around. My uh, secret service code name, if I had one, is Tim Beanie. So yeah, I'm into magic. I love yeah. it. That is awesome. So, that is so cool. Well, yeah. We spent during the pandemic, our kids are 12 and 14 now, but we fell in love with this TV show called Magic for Humans. It's on oh, Netflix. Justin Willman, one of my favorites. Yes, yes. And so mm -hmm. he actually had a couple specials during the pandemic where you could, you know, sign up and go on Zoom. And so I think it was maybe Valentine's Day where there was a special and maybe last or a couple Christmases ago, there was a special, but that was just incredible. He was doing this, this on Zoom and you know what? There were probably 400 people on the Zoom and at 50 bucks a pop, I mean, he wasn't doing too bad for the pandemic. Yes. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, he is my single favorite magician, Indeed. both because of his comic touch, but his just extraordinary skill. And it's it's great when he ties it into some of our kind of management, organization, behavior, psychology yeah. topics. It's just genius. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a raving Justin Willman fan. We could have kind of a bro sharing here of, you know, our mutual likes as we seem to share a perspective. So, magic know. for Susans, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I will put a link for listeners who have a love for magic as well. We will put a link into the show notes and you can you can check that out. It's just a great he's just he's got great energy and I love how he incorporates his son now into the equation too, which is kind of fun. But yeah. that's not why we're here. We are here because I'm really really excited for this conversation, sir. You know, 
one of my, I was on the phone today with an organization and we were talking about a session that I could do for them. And I tried to be very, very realistic with what actually the results would be of our hour and a half together, right? I said something to the effect of, in that amount of time, we can probably increase awareness, <laughs> right? I mean, it's we're not going to be building incredible levels of skill. And it may not be that people could recall to any great depth, a large portion of the content even a week later, but we can build awareness in that amount of time. And this is a great challenge, I think, for for the work that I do, many listeners, but this whole notion of transfer, how are we more likely to ensure that what we're doing is actually transferring on the job and, and making it live in organizational life? And I know that that's been a piece of your scholarship over the years. And so I can't wait to jump into that. I'd love to get into first, maybe, how did you get into it? What? How did that how did that topic really stand out for you? But before we do that, I'm I'm kind of like backing up. There was a really awesome quote. I used it in a paper once, and let's see if I can get it right. It was from an anonymous executive, and the executive said something to the effect of, I'm pretty sure that half of every training dollar we spend goes to waste. I just can't figure out which half. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's accurate, although I'm not sure the half. That's that's oftentimes used for advertisers as well to say half of all our advertising spend is wasted. We just don't know, you know, which half it is. I think that's so apt. I appreciate sort of your awareness and honesty, Scott, not to overhype what you're doing because yeah. To talk a little bit about the genesis of my interest, uh, when I was, uh, I did all my degree work at, at Michigan State, took a doctoral class from uh, Kevin Ford, and Kevin ultimately became a longtime, still collaborator with me. Mm. And he had an article in our packet on the transfer problem. And yeah. it really alluded to many of the things that you're talking about here is that that uh, psychologists, turns out psychologists have been working on this for over 100 years. Mm. This is not new. So, you know, Woodworth and Thorngate back in the early 1900s identified the challenge of transferring learning in one context to application in another. And we've made some serious advances, but it remains a large and insidious challenge. Mm. So you hear these sorts of estimates and these things are all subjective at some level, hard to get perfect empirics around some of these estimates, but you know, 60% of what people take from a class forgotten in a week, 80% in a month, you see the absolute dismal relationship between diversity training and ethics training and, and the, such a low correlation with any of the change in behaviors of those on the job. Mm. You know, particularly in management training, I'm going to give you a study that, that I did that was just so arresting to me is that why is it that we have such fundamental principles that we have a lot of consensus on about what it is that's good people management in an organization. And yet we have such astoundingly high and negative ratings of management performance. I think one survey said less than 50% of people ask about the performance of their immediate manager on a five-point scale put above three. Mm, and people were wow. putting, you know, I hope my manager dies in her sleep or, you know, uh, that I, I would take, I would forego a raise to get a shift in a manager. I don't want to be flipped, but it's just, we really have a lot of toxic organizations and they stem, you know, so often from that managerial presence. You've heard the, the cliches and the adages that people don't leave organizations. They leave managers. And yep. what is ultimately a culture other than that immediate personal relationship between individuals? individuals and their managers. So we read this article and it just resonated personally with me. Wow. 
Yeah. And that's that's to me always a good thing to study. I, I, I counsel my doctors so study something you're interested in that grabs you that don't don't make up a problem or don't chase a fad. And, you know, I was reading this article and I'm just saying this just connects with me. Why yeah. am I so good on the driving range and so bad on the course? <laughs> you know, why is it OK, you know, that students can perform so well on a team test? And then so poorly when, you know, in a team actually performing, why people are all ready to go with their speech and then completely freak out, you know, and choke, which is another thing I hope we have a little time to talk about, because I think that's one of the most provocative sorts of arenas where transfer is so important and has such, you know, high implications, both positive and negative. And you can help yourself mitigate that choking. I'm, I'm OK here. But once I get in the moment, how do I deliver that? That's a big deal. So it really be became kind of a personal interest of mine, struck by how hard it is, given all the work that's done and attention and importance. And I would just double down that I think it's particularly important in the world today. I hear mm. some of these high tech, that's kind of cliche, but I really believe that. And you hear some of these high tech firms, for example, talk about how some large percentage of their revenue is from products or services, say less than two or three years old. Well, you mm. just think about the implications of learning in an organization. If half our revenue products, then we're going to have to get, as they call, big learning fast. And somehow we're going to have to gear up to be able to replace half our revenue. Well, that just screams we've got to learn. And we've got to learn very fast and very efficiently. It just screams using learning technology and, and learning tactics that are really going to have an impact. We can't just be nice or hope people like it or, you know, even just build awareness. We got to start targeting down where we can impact what people actually can produce on the job. And then the second piece in sort of really current parlance with the talent show shortage and the great resignation and the just the difficulty that folks that organizations are having searching talent is that you know in the old accounting investment choice make versus buy mm -hmm. there might have been times where you could buy your employees just go purchase the talent seek and, and and have really really aggressive recruiting go find maybe compensate at a higher level or advance quicker or something and get a high level of employee base that way now that's decreasingly a possibility and so the necessity of making if you will in using that metaphor uh, is so much more important so it just puts more premium on we've got to we've got to do this well so i think it's it's a topic that's had a long history and has even even more sort of currency today and its importance. Take us through what we, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, but what we know, what do we know about this space? Yeah. That's a terrific, straightforward. I mean, a little bit, you know, simplistic. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. You know, is that there's a large body, a lot of discoveries. I'm sure that if any of my scholar buddies go, thanks for the mention of all the great work <laughs> that I've done. All right. You, you sort of cut to the chase, but just to put it in a short form, a discussion starter, which I see a podcast for, yeah. I think one of the things that we know, or what you might say we've learned yeah. in our study of transfer. Um, however, again, kind of, you know, sort of mirroring a little bit of simplicity. It's not an event. You don't have a class and get transferred. It's yep. just not an event. That just doesn't happen. Your honesty about maybe we could build some awareness. You're not going to really get at a change in behavior in having some kind of learning event, whether it be a class or an experience or a simulation or something, and get really material levels of transfer. Yep. It's a process. Yep. And it happens over time. 
Another misnomer, I think, of transfer that's worth getting in our discussion here is that it's entirely centered around the event that from one context, the learning context is critical. And so you might get seduced into the, the challenge here is to design the magical learning experience that turns into transfer. Let's take a, a management class. My particular interest is in the transfer of management skills. Yeah. That how do people go from being individual contributors to people managers? And why has that been so elusive in our workplaces, given people like me spend their time teaching these classes and you? Why do we have? It's a bit of a self-indictment. So we kind of take it personally of why it is we don't have higher levels of people management behaviors in our organizations. The misnomer is, well, if we could just get the right classes. The reality of transfer is not just about the learning event. The learning event is clearly important, yeah. but it's also about who's in that learning event and what do they bring. One of my great influences was a guy named John Campbell, who had a wonderful career at the University of Minnesota, IO psychologist. I still reference John repeatedly as he was all over these ideas, even though he was active 25, 30 years ago. He liked the phrase, trainees don't fall out of some trainee bin in the sky. Hmm. You know, is that they are there with rich histories, organizationally, personally, motivation and the like. And so it's really critical that we think about who's in that training. What are they bringing to it? Do they come with any kind of a gap or a problem, you know, in broad strokes, a motivation to learn? Or are they there because they were asked to be or it's part of the curriculum or do they truly come, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about some phasing. Are they at a place in their career, their lives, where they're going to need that training? You know, I really think this need to know and hungry at the buffet of learning, some of those adages are are very apt here. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, again, perhaps self-evident, transfer context. They have that. They go back. Do they have any opportunity to practice? Is there any opportunity for feedback? Is there any supervisor support? Do they get any sort of reinforcement in those environments? Generally speaking, you might think, well, sure, but that's just not true. Many, many training programs and organizations could be defined by being permission. You're allowed to go, maybe it's paid for, but you're not really supported in saying we want to create the kinds of environments and contexts where you really can transfer, you're reinforced for that and so on. So I think those are a couple of the biggies that we've we've really learned over time that impact the study of transfer. Let's get away from the early scientists to try to focus on how do you make a learning environment most transfer ready? Yeah. So they focused on, is the context identical elements to do we have the right principles built in and so on? And I think we've we've re- very appropriately expanded that to before training, who's coming and the setup and why, and after training, what kind of support context we have. It's interesting when I think about other contexts where training is essential. So let's say uh, a surgeon right? You have so many more of those ingredients that you just mentioned where the learning is being scaffolded over years. We have mentors who are guiding the appendix all the way up to the heart. <laughs> we have we have so much more baked into, and then they are so close. The learning and the work are so closely tied together. And then, of course, you have the the stakes, right? I mean, if it's a pilot, you better be darn sure that you've spent some time in the simulator and that you've worked your way up to the 737, but it's a similar type 
type concept. And I just, how do we do that in organizational life? How do we do that? How do we get the education close to the work? How do we get the immediate feedback that a surgeon receives or that a pilot receives, that immediate feedback? Because in organizational life, my team is scared. They're afraid. They won't give me the authentic, real feedback. So we have a lot of managers walking around without some of that data. And it's just, it's such a fun puzzle. It really is. Because like you, I I might phrase it a little differently, but my passion is how do I help support someone to be better prepared to serve in these formal or informal leadership roles? Because they're hard. It's difficult work. It's not easy. Depending on the industry, but just the work, COVID, supply chain challenges, the great resignation, just any number of other contextual factors outside of just the normal day-to-day, it's difficult. What thoughts do you have on how we could do it better? Are there hypotheses that you have about what we could be doing? Well, again, I have, like you, as many questions as I have answers, but (laughs) all right. You know, claiming with that that introduction, claiming some scholarly, you know, sort of approach. Let me not just offer my opinion, but yeah. what what might we draw from yeah. some of the study and work in, in this arena? And and, and that, you know, there's two or three things that, that yeah. come to mind in no particular order. One is is that I, I'm a big fan. It's not original with me. I can't even remember where I got it, but I love it and I want to claim it. Yeah. And that is, I think we've sort of violated some of the learned evidence about under what conditions do training programs and events and, and learning stimuli lead to. And I like to call it J3 learning, mm. like J to the third power, as okay. in just in time, just enough, and just for me. Wow. wow. Just in time, just enough, and just for me. And if you sort of reverse engineer most of what we do, let's just do the self-indictment of college classes. It's almost the antithesis of yes. that. Yes. That it's okay, you know, just in case yeah. we're going to give you a whole body of knowledge just in case you may someday need it, just the whole text or the whole course or <laughs> all set of modules and just for everyone in the class that come from very different backgrounds and are headed to very different careers, you know. Yeah. So on yeah. one level, it's almost a kind of humorous violation of what the evidence would say. And so it. this idea of trying to 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 target, to narrow down to this this term micro learning, I'm a very big fan of, and I'll talk about an example out there in just a minute. So I think that's one thing is yeah. to shrink the change rather than enlarge. We have a we got to do more. We got to do it better. We shrink the change, I think, is one. Second is that one of the principles that I think is so relevant in uh, when you mentioned surgery or you mentioned sports or these things is to expand beyond the concept of, of physical fidelity. Hmm. Again, the early scientists were really interested in physical fidelity, kind of fancy term for a simple, and that is it looks just the same. The basketball court we train on is the basketball court we play on. There, see, we've got it. Yep. But the reality is that we all know at some level is it's not the same feel. No. And so one of the training mistakes that we make, and I want to use that analogy into our organizational environments, is to try to take 100 free throws. And by the end, I was better. So I take 100 free throws. And what I practice now, I hit a higher percentage of those free throws. The current literature would not support that. You can't just practice those free throws. You have to practice those free throws under the conditions of pressure that you're going to face in the game. Just shooting, that's the wrong. In fact, that might even give you negative transfer. 
Wow. Where having done that, similarly with a driving range, a driving range is one of the great seductions of playing better golf because you hit 25 straight drives. You never do that. You hit a drive and then you hit a seven iron. Or in my case, you hit a drive, get it out of the woods and maybe hit another drive. Okay, maybe two in a row. Uh, But you get the idea is that because it doesn't feel the same way. And so to, to, to hit the choking thing, the rules of choking are repeated behavior under pressure, okay, so that you get habitual behavior with the goal that you don't have to think about it. I don't want you sitting, waiting to hit your 98th free throw and setting up. I want you so used to shooting. And then you got to do practice under conditions. Let me give you, if I might, just one quick example in our environment. We have here, because I'm trying to think about how we do it in our context. Yeah. Because it's quite easy sometimes to draw the analogies. I'm a big sports fan from sports things, but then you go, how do we do it in a, in a classroom? We have a course here called the spine sweat experience. And it's a course in our entrepreneurship curriculum. I'm in the department of management and entrepreneurship. And you can, as a student, you can take the course either uh, by yourself or you can pair with a fellow student. You present a new venture, you introduce a new venture, the professor, one of our most skilled entrepreneurship professors, coaches you throughout the term. At the end of the term, the only assessment of any kind is you present to an advisory board drawn from our Kelly uh, School of Business advisory boards in Silicon Valley, Chicago, Indianapolis, various ones we have. And they do the judging. Nice. If they deem it an investment, they want to you know, be almost Shark Tank-like, yep. then they typically provide $1,000 of their own money and open doors for these students in social network. Hmm. If they say, no, not investment ready, but adequate, all right, certainly as a course, I can see a young student doing this. That was a very competent professional pitch, not something we believe is investment ready. They can give through a B through a D. If they deem it not worthy, That is, they go, that was not well done in a way that you should. You get an F and you fail the course and you cannot graduate with a degree in entrepreneurship. Wow. Wow. And I just throw that in because what's the idea? The idea is not just to say we're playing. It's all safe. It's it's to put you, we don't want lasting harm. You can still graduate with a Kelly degree, but you are putting at risk your entrepreneurship degree, just like you're putting it your, your parents' money, yeah. your investment, you know, and so you're trying to simulate. That's what I encourage us to try to think about is that that creates a, a different kind of feeling, you know, eruditely called psychological fidelity, but does it feel the same way, not just look and, you know, physically the same? In our MBA, I, they're presenting four times over the course of two years. And the first time it's just to me. The second time it's to a group of alumni who are actually grading their presentation at that second semester of their first year. The third semester, it's to a panel of experts in the community who are also coaching them, but they have to present to that panel and they're given a grade. And then the final presentation in the MBA is to C-level executives in the community who grade their final presentation. And that's one thing we hear consistently over and over and over. So it's so fun to hear you say this because it's real. It's not, I'm presenting to to Dr. Allen. It's, oh my gosh, the CEO of Goodyear is in the audience. (laughs) And that's high stakes. That's real. That's, I'm not, I don't even, I'm not even grading any of them. It's all in the hands of these uh, professionals who are C-level executives. Yeah. And it just mirrors and simulates the reality much more closely, right? I mean, obviously not one-to-one, but more closely. 
That is spot on, Scott. If I might just interject there, yeah. I think a, a related piece of that phenomenon is failure experiences. Mm. And I think this is one of the challenges that we face in doing, you're asking the right question. Yeah. How do we take some of these known strategies and inject them into situations? And it's hard yep. because the context is such that we have paying customers, if you will, <laughs> that aren't really paying to fail. <laughs> they, they are paying a very high you know, tab to succeed. They and their parents aren't looking to say, yeah, they failed the entrepreneur. That's not what mom was most excited about. She wanted, you know, and we are, are we not in an educational environment? So should we yes. just test and fail? But if you look at, say, what the military academies do with training, they are well known for putting these young plebes and trainees in contexts where it's impossible to succeed. Mm. impossible. And then they judge their behavior. And mm. then much like good entrepreneurs, the point is not just you failed, but what can we learn from that? And how do we then pivot and grow? I yeah. think that is a terrific lesson for us to figure out how can we build in failure experiences, maybe right at the front end to create some kind of need for learning. You're not as good as you think, yep. maybe to, to sort of, you know, humble some folks, but more than that, to get an awareness because, you know, so often we have this sense that it's self-evident or common sense how to do say management behavior yeah. and then we look at all these cultures and it would seem if it was so common sense we'd have a more uniform set of successful behavior and we don't i think we have to get a little more comfortable both as students understanding that failure, you know, all the entrepreneurs talk about their learning was greater from failure. Almost, you know, what it's the adage, no entrepreneur of any worth, you know, did not have a failure experience sometime in their history, right? Yeah. How do we mirror that in our educational environments where it's a little bit of an arresting, you know, and, and you get folks' attention in ways that they don't rebel or mutiny or lose yeah. self-confidence. You know, it's a group. Some of the stereotypes are true. Everyone did get a trophy. They don't like A minuses. These are these sometimes are hard for students to adjust to. But I think we have to have the courage, if you will, in a learning sense, not yeah. to be privy just to how much they liked it but to try to move the evaluation criteria down to results and, and real behavior change, not just reactions and liking or. Yeah. Moving away from the smile sheets and just, I mean, uh, there was a really interesting article that just came out in um, journal of leadership and organizational studies. I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody, but it was all about evidence-based leader development. And, you know, there's been our, our, all kinds of articles about evidence-based management. Yep. So on one end is is what we're teaching evidence-based. And according to this article, it's it's not good mm -hmm. when it comes to leader development. But then also are we how much of even that is transferring over to behavior change? And so you talked about behavior change there in that last little passage. What else do we know about actual behavior change? I mean, that's the the as you said, psychologists have been noodling with this <laughs> you know no. so true if you not eat less right <laughs> no kidding no kidding yeah wear sunscreen you know? yeah but you know yeah. it's it's so interesting any any yeah. recent thoughts on that topic of the well yeah two one if i might just to share a quick 
summary of a, of a study that was just arresting to me on this very point of the difference between knowing and doing, oh, yeah. you know, if that's hardly original with me, but yeah. we did a study where we had the opportunity to look at a, an assessment. It's a, it's an eight item in basket assessment of managerial behavior. And this is fundamentals. This is leading a team, coaching for performance, delegating work, very little argument about we have some rules. I think it would be in some evidence base. This is what kind of a supervisor of people should ha- do, you know, behave. There could always be some subjectivity, some contextual, you know, we're professors. we got to say, well, it depends on the situation. But in general, you can generate consensus. You have eight items in your in-basket. It's done electric. So if you're an individual taking the assessment, you have an hour and 45 minutes to, to address these eight items. Address means identify what the problem is, identify what you would do. And then if you'd say, well, I'd send a memo or I'd drop a note, actually do it. But what's critical here is there are no cues. There is no multiple choice. They Mm. are blank boxes. What's the issue? What would you do? And then if you're going to do something, write what it would be. So you can see the alignment if you said, well, I would, you know, set expectation. Do you in the memo follow that up? So you have eight items scored zero to four, four being mastery, zero being not really getting it. (laughs) The maximum score would be 32 on this. The average across 10,000 people ranging from senior execs, even some C-suite, all the way down to college students was 11 out of 32. So what's one, one supplement to that? We then, we have some subset, about a couple thousand of those students. We also gave a multiple choice test of the eight items. In that situation, what would you do? And some of them had multiple questions. Okay, The average was over 90%. Wow. Wow. So I just want you to contemplate that for a second. So as long as I cue you and I say, what would you do? Then, you know, you're good. You get it. Oh, yes. I should definitely show some gratitude for people yeah. for participating and whatnot. But in the moment, when you're actually asked to do it, that's okay. the battle. It's a world of possibilities in the moment and people are overwhelmed. People yes. are... Yep. And it's you're facing one to one. When you're actually faced with that, your intentions are good. You know, sort of in general what to do, but to, to put it in application. And so, you know, a lot of nuances to that. But I think it really jogs just we're not kidding. This is a really difficult problem. So one thought on the uh, a part of the answer, which I've already alluded to, is this idea of micro learning. And there's a there's a group I was just exposed to. They're, they're called Ring O-Rang, R-I-N-G-O-R-A-N-G. Startup okay. firm, interestingly enough, in Wichita, Kansas. I believe they originally started out in San Francisco, but now they're in Wichita, Kansas. And they have some contracts with IBM and some healthcare providers and other places. And they're really trying to operationalize this idea of micro learning. So what they do is they work with the firm and identify problems or results that the firm wants. We want a higher sales performance, or we want greater med compliance, or we want more uh, or lower cybersecurity risk. Okay. So in in some evaluation, as we were talking about earlier, that might be sort of a hierarchy of evaluating training from smile sheets to learning tests to behaviors to results. These folks actually invert that. And they start the design with the result. They then build these micro learning modules based on, well, what then nesting under the result, what might be the behaviors that you would want specifically that would be associated with those results. They then create very tiny learning modules, five minutes, 
that they oh. push electronically to the participants. And it usually includes a set of questions. So there's the opportunity for failure experience, tiny little modules you can read in advance or something, but it's just micro little pieces to try to move the needle and then just sort of iteratively build up to a greater set of competence or performance. Now, you know, does it, does it apply to all skill sets? No, I mean, there's all kinds of limitations, but I think it's a way of really operationalizing this idea of let's let's shrink the change. Yep. Let's get very targeted. Let's make it just for that audience, yep. just in their environment. They do some other things, a little gamification. They have awards and you can get badges and some of the things that are very sort of contemporary. But the big thing is the data that they can gather when they give a five question, they blast to you. Some of them leave a time limit. You only got an hour and a half. You have to answer it today. So you only need five minutes. So you just go ahead and you miss two of them. Mm. Well, now you can take it again, but you know now where your gaps are. And there's, they've got some preliminary data that says they can reduce cybersecurity risk. People are more likely not to, wow. you know, be subject to phishing. No, you know, and their consulting team at IBM is moving towards, you know, uh, different kind of client management skills and so on. So that's just one example of, I, I think, trying to be really creative about operationalizing these sort of broad general principles we're talking about that sound good on paper can be hard to put in place in the environments we're in. I mentioned food earlier and I was speaking with a friend who's somewhat of an expert in the space. And I was, I was saying, look, I need to, I need to lower some pounds here. I have this world of possibilities in front of me. And his suggestion to me was chew slower, <laughs> chew your food 50 times. It was, it was the I suggestion, but it, what's fascinating about that, Tim, is this, I forget 75% of the time right now. I get to a meal, I scarf it down, I don't chew 50 times. And what I had said to him was, look, I want some small things that I can do with excellence and slowly shift behavior to a new way of being. Creating a list of seven things I'm going to do in a day, whether it's work out for two hours and drink eight blue glasses of water and this and this and this and this, it's just, it's not sustainable. It hasn't worked. But what's fascinating is, logically, I understand that. I understand to chew slowly, 50 times. I can't do it. <laughs> but if you, so if yeah, we. Yeah, if we, I have a growth mindset. Yeah, it, I can't do it Exactly. Okay. You bet, Carol Dweck. You, we're, not, we're not done yet. <laughs> but so if you say, you know, facts are friendly. Yeah. And so that's the reality. Yeah. And then you think, well, what would be the antidote? It's going to be repeated pushes, right? It's yeah. going to be reminding. Yeah. It's going to be thinking about it. It's going to be reinforcement. So I think that it's kind of, again, not to get too cute, yeah. but going from knowing to doing for us. We know yeah. that that's probably the rule. It does work if you do yeah. that. If yep. you divide up your portions, if you don't eat, if you cut the chicken in half, if you yeah. eat slower, you know, if you start, okay, you you know, with the vegetables, if you, you know, get yourself fuller first before you dive into the fried potatoes, you know, that I think that there is a great lesson in that. Yeah. And as I said, I've got more questions and I've got answers, but I think we're starting to ask some of the questions now. It's how do we build that into these environments where we don't just repeat the sins of our predecessors? 
where we kind of hope for transfer and hope is not a strategy. What are we doing consistent at least? We can't ever design the perfect thing, but but I would contend that back to our earlier discussion, so much of your transfer was not just in the content. That's a fine morsel of information, absolutely yes. real. But the whole point is, are you ready to hear it? Are you motivated to activate it? And then what do we got in terms of the transfer context that'll reinforce it and support it? Well, and it, it's it's just such a, a fascinating conversation because I, I share the passion that you have for this topic and that it's it's a fascinating puzzle. It just is. I mean great and, way to put it. And I think each one of us are fascinating case studies. And when you think about some of those questions that you're still pondering, because you you've mentioned a couple of times we still have more questions than we have answers. Are there some key questions that just really keep you cooking? Well, kind of in the in the spirit of failure experiences, you know, uh, there's this recent push, including books called The College Scam, that begin to really look and say, here's a, in accompanying the uh, payback student loans and all these kinds of things. Well, that's really led to this discussion around, is college worth it? Mm. And from a, a transfer of skills, and boy, you are seeing increasing and loud voices say no. And you're watching the Googles of the world say, we don't care if you have a college education. Can you code? And we'll pay you a bunch of money to come and code. And so one of the things keeps me up at night with a long career in college and an absolute love and affection for the college experience and not wanting it to be simply limited to a social development experience for wealthy parents, you know, as your kid will grow up or come of age or meet a spouse or, you know, something. No, is this really something that's developmental? I think we're at a, at a juncture where we're mm-hmm. going to have to start demonstrating that, in fact, we are contributing, particularly in our arenas. I, I think you can make the case in surgery and maybe even in some dimensions of our schools and accounting or finance or supply or uh, data analytics. But if we're going to reserve a place for the soft skills, so to speak, are we making a difference? I think we got to ask those hard questions and say, what are we doing? Do we, are we teaching it? You know, can we get more co-curricular? Is it in fact possible to move the needle on some of these things with our existing structures? And if you go back to early strategy, it's always structure should follow strategy. So yeah. for what we're trying to do is improve the performance of management in our workplaces. Is this the structure to do it? That's a question that keeps me up at night because wow. I think we go back and find ourselves trying to make do with suboptimal, you know, and going, well, we tried to build in some failure. We tried to build in some fidelity. We tried to shrink it, but you know, we got eight weeks or 15 weeks and we have to use that text and you know there we are and i think that's that's one of the sort of meta questions if you will that uh, keeps me up at night yes yes and when you get back to some of kind of the structural challenges that we face specifically in management and leadership i i love your perspective on how do we shrink it down and do that with excellence and at least having that experiment and that that approach, will that yield different results given yeah. the structure that probably isn't going away in some ways, right? So what's interesting is given the structure we have, what can we do to maximize? I mean, we could have the conversation about shifting structure, but given what we do have, what are some experiments we need to be running to see if we get further 
to see if we get closer to to that ideal space. Yeah, I wonder if there are analogs to your notion of chew slower. Is that we're both fans of the uh, the Management and Organizational Behavior Teaching Society, and about twenty years ago, the founder of that group, David Bradford, walked into the opening session and said, "I have a challenge for everyone, and that is, I know you're all prepared for your." forthcoming sessions in the next three days. I want you to cut what you are going to do personally in half. Whatever you're going to do, I want you to cut it in half. How much ever uh, input you were going to bring, cut it in half. And there was just this, wait a minute, why didn't you tell me earlier? (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure there's a little bit of retrospective memory here on my part. But my memory of the final session was that that was such a wonderful jolt in changing the dynamic of the meeting, it improved the interaction or something. And so in that spirit of saying, what are the experiments that we could do in our environments that would, you know, would it be cut your course in half? One of the challenges though, is that the students so prefer, you know, do a few things well, have a a shrink to change model. But, you know, one of the other, uh, you know, I I refer back to some of these classic transfer notions is masked versus spaced learning. And there's a general now leaning towards spaced learning gets better transfer over time. You know, you sustain it more. It sort of keeps in your memory if you sustain it. But students hate that. Hmm. Students want to get it out of the way. I took that course. If you've ever taught something that they felt they had before and faced the mutiny, you know what I mean. So there is this sense that, no, I want it masked. And yet, so you get this disconnect between what the students perceive that they like and want, but their actual impact on their transfer. Again, it's one of these kind of, you know, in the military, you can say tough love. In our environments with very costly tuition and all the supporting structure, that can be harder to fly against student interest and so on. So, but I don't want in any way mitigate your desire for skunk works and experiments and sort of the entrepreneurial spirit. If we're going to fail, let's fail fast and cheaply and quickly, but let's try new things to get them out. I'd be a huge advocate for that. Friend of mine who's been on the podcast a couple of times, his name's Dave Rush. And uh, he said, look, you know, we, we, again, this is in the context of leader development, but we, we bring them in and we teach them a history lesson. And we expect that, and, and we tell them we're developing their leadership. And it's just an interesting thought experiment. To some of your points about being an effective manager, you know, have we approached the problem incorrectly? So I'm going to give you just one example. What if our courses were about mindfulness, right? <laughs> what if our courses were about uh, reflexivity? What if our courses were about critical reflection? What if our courses and really developing the habits of mind of someone who you can't predict the infinite number of variables they will be experiencing? Like you can in a plane, it's a it's a fairly contained system. A surgery, although complex, depending on the surgery, is a fairly contained system. In these systems where, to your point from from the inbox activity, as soon as I don't have the options in front of me, there's just an infinite number of an infinite number of variables in my swirling through my head. So how do you help someone navigate the whether we could call it VUCA or we could call it complex or we could call that ill-structured problems or ill-defined problems, the habits of mind that are going to be successful in helping an individual navigate that? It's just a different approach. Right? Oh. And that can teach you transformational leadership theory and mm-hmm. situational leadership theory. 
you know, I don't know, maybe that's what will be helpful for you. Or are there some habits of mind that will serve you well? And to yeah. your point, is that built over four years or is that just a one semester, 15 week class? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you've, <laughs> there's a lot packed into that. <laughs> I was ready to say yes. We're, we're go like for at the it, end of the conversation here, and I just dropped. I, that I know, <laughs> I know. All right. Uh, I, I guess I would just say I like. I, I don't think. I think it's fair to say that what we're doing hasn't worked that well. At yeah. least when we get to the core. Now, many people have had wonderful experiences, go on and do great things. So it's not to throw the whole enterprise out. Yeah. But I think it is a place where you could argue an experimentation would be warranted, yeah. and to try some different approaches. I think the the teaching of entrepreneurship, I, you know, sort of kind of inherited uh, this yeah. entrepreneurship piece of our department. When I started, we didn't. And I'm so moved by, because uh, so, there's a lot of excitement. There's so much energy. There's new ventures. And one of the things is, is it all uh, attitude? Is it all about hustle and risk-taking and whatnot? And increasingly, our folks are saying no is that you can develop habits of resilience. You can develop habits of hustle. You can learn to sort of, to, to, to how to navigate a particular uh, market space and the like. And we need to, over time, people will be in all kinds of different ventures, but build. it's the same sort of thing I think you're saying, rather than a pat leadership theory, it's yeah. you get habits of mind for how to approach these various situations. And then that would cut across. And I think that could be a place where a longer term university education might make sense. Now, it does have that spaced learning feel where you're going to return to some of the same things at potential risk of students feeling like we've done this and the like. So it would take some creative design. But I'm with you on that to think that's a that's a noble experiment that I'd like to see someone, you know, try and, and then sort of figure out in what way might you evaluate yeah. You know, much like these ringerang folks are doing it. When given these situations, do folks seem to display different patterns yeah. of mindfulness or thinking? That would be a really exciting experiment in curriculum. Well, sir, I, I would love for you to come back. I want to continue the conversation. Love I think to. before we close out for the day, what's caught your attention lately? What have you been reading or streaming or listening to? It could have something to do with what we've just discussed. It could have nothing to do with what we've discussed. What's, yes. what's caught your attention? Well, just a couple of things. One, you know, I'm uh, just a huge fan of my colleague at Wharton, Adam Grant, and pretty much if he talks about it, I'm interested. So he just has a really keen insight into what's interesting. And now he's got such great access that the guests are so fascinating. And I'm currently reading his Think Again, and I think it relates just to what we're talking about here. What's the old, uh, I think it was Will Rogers, it's not what we don't know that gets us in trouble, it's what we know that just ain't so. (laughs) And I think about some of these things that we've learned that we think is good learning practice, and it's just not, and it's not having, and this idea of some ambivalence or, you know, willingness to reconsider and to think again, to hear from other sources, I think is very helpful. So I listen to a lot of, of Adam's stuff. Some of my colleagues have turned me on to a couple other cool podcasts. This uh, Tim Ferriss, oh, yeah. uh, you may have yeah. seen, very popular, just yep. does really interesting things. Not all management or business related, but he dives into the four-hour work week. And again, provoking is kind of where I'm drawn. Yep. Yep. Uh, this not boring you know, these guys talk with the uh, new founders of businesses largely, and it's just really interesting. Here's kind of an entrepreneurial bent, but yeah. really interesting takes on their idea, how they came up with it. And I do think to hearken to our discussion that we're in an environment now where we need 
we need a little entrepreneurial thinking. What is the new venture, you yeah. know, in management, education, and training that is a grab? And then if you don't mind, I put in a plug for my uh, mm. Avenue program on the edX platform. Okay. Uh, called the new manager's toolkit. We tried, again, a lot of structural constraints, but yep. we really tried to embody what are the real micro pieces of success in that role, really targeting those folks that are moving from an individual contributor to a first line manager position. So very much not senior exec. This is somebody that's been a barista and going to a manager position at uh, Starbucks or you know taking a manager position at Walmart or something, really even trying to get out of a full-fledged college education environment and more that there's so much importance to how people are led yep, and so much hurt and sadness and dysfunction when they're led poorly, disrespected, all of our issues now with respect and inclusion and diversity and so on. So we really tried to build that in. So that's on the, the edX platform called the New Manager Toolkit. I've got three wonderful co-authors, but uh, really a delight to talk with you, Scott. You're a terrific foil for teeing up questions. And uh, <laughs> you've, you've uh, I actually feel energized after speaking. Well, it's a fun conversation. And we'll continue the dialogue. So I will put a link to all of those resources that you just mentioned into the show notes. So listeners, you can go there and check all of that out. And uh, thank you for the good work that you do, sir. Thanks for helping us think through this puzzle of how we take what we've learned and transfer it back to the job. Like I said, it's just a beautiful puzzle. And I love that people like you exist who are working it. I think it's awesome. So thank you, sir. You bet. Thanks, Scott. All the best. Okay. So we spent some time having just a lot of fun exploring a little bit. Something that that Tim said that really is going to stick with me is this whole notion of just in time, just enough, just for me. How do we individualize this education or this learning uh, when the user needs it and in a way that we do not overwhelm the learner so that they become buried. <laughs> because at times we're very good uh, at burying learners in content. Such a cool dialogue. And I think a really, really important piece of this whole conversation of developing leaders, how do we better prepare individuals to serve in these informal and formal roles, whether leading or following, so that they can do that work more successfully, so they can more likely achieve whatever it is they hope to achieve. I think it's fun. I am so thankful for this conversation with Dr. Tim Baldwin. Thank you, sir, for spending some time with me, and thank you for the good work that you do. Again, just in time, just enough, just for me. It's more than just the event. Who's coming to the event and what is it about them, their motivation to learn, their readiness to learn, what happens at the event, and then what happens after the event to really ensure that that learning is solidified. Important considerations for any curriculum designer for anyone hoping to truly make a difference for the people in their care as learners. Speaking of learning, 
great opportunity coming up to attend the International Leadership Association. You can find some links in the show notes. And I also will draw your attention to a learning opportunity with the Prometheus Project to explore the work of Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy and their immunity to change process. So there's some links in the show notes for that as well. As always, thank you so much for checking in, everyone. Take care, be well, and if you like what we're doing, subscribe, share with others, spread the word. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.